over the past few years. One of the major buzzwords within Christianity has been the word mission. There have been all kinds of books and talks about what it mean, given about what it means for a church to be on mission or for Christians to be missional. But unfortunately, almost all of this emphasis on mission has not been helpful. Because most of the people talking in American Christianity today about mission can't agree on what the mission is. Is the church's mission political activism for candidates on the right or for candidates on the left? Is the church's mission social activism? Is the big thing at the end of the day that Jesus wants us to do to go out there and publicly oppose abortion? Is it to publicly advocate for the restoration of a traditional definition of marriage? Is it to facilitate racial reconciliation? Is it to promote social justice? Why are we here and what does God intend for us to be doing? Those are pretty important questions, right? And those are questions we're going to consider this morning as we continue our study in the Gospel of Matthew. Today we're going to be in Matthew chapter 9, verse 35, through chapter 10, verse 15. And today we're going to talk about the mission that Jesus has given to His people and to His church. And we're going to look at this today by looking at three questions. First, we're going to ask, why is there a mission? Second, we're going to ask, who is on the mission? And third, we're going to ask, what is this mission and how are we to go about it? Okay, so let's jump right in. Question number one, why is there a mission? Uh, since chapter 4, we've been learning about Jesus' early ministry in ancient Galilee. And in chapter 4, Matthew introduced us to three topics that he thinks are really important for us to know about Jesus' ministry in Galilee. Number one is Jesus preaching. Number two is Jesus performing miracles. And number three is Jesus calling disciples. And Matthew then emphasizes these topics that he introduces in chapter 4 across the next several chapters. So... In chapters 5 through 7, we saw Jesus preaching the Sermon on the Mount. In chapters 8 and 9, we saw Jesus perform 10 miracles. And now there's just one topic left before Matthew tells us how Jesus concluded his ministry in Galilee. And that remaining topic involves Jesus' work with the disciples. Now, this isn't exactly a new topic. In the last few weeks, we have seen Jesus do some things with the disciples, teach his disciples, and call some disciples. Back in fact, in chapter 4, we saw that Jesus called four fishermen who worked on the Sea of Galilee, Peter and his brother Andrew, and James and his brother John. And you'll remember Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And they did follow him. By chapter 8, Jesus has become so famous, there's this massive crowd following him around. And you might remember, two men from the crowd step forward and they want to volunteer to become Jesus' disciples. But Jesus deters them. He tells them some hard truths. He says, following me is hard because the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He says to the other fellow, following me has to take precedence over everything else in your life, including your father's funeral. And yet, by chapter 9, we see that Jesus has indeed called a number of people to separate themselves from the crowds and to become his authentic followers. We saw that a number of people who previously had been classified as disreputable, tax collectors and sinners, they had come to Christ. In fact, in chapter 9, we saw Jesus call one of the chief disreputable people of ancient Capernaum, 
Matthew, who seems to be the chief tax collector. And Jesus says, you follow me, and he does. So we have seen a bit about discipleship so far. But here in chapter 10, we're going to see uh, a lot more. As Jesus is going to give a sermon preparing the disciples for a big mission that he's going to send them on. And as we pick up today, we begin with the background to this mission that Jesus is going to send his disciples on. Look at Matthew chapter 9, verse 35. We read, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, the cities and villages of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. Okay, so this is a summary of Jesus' ministry in Galilee. What's interesting is, this is virtually identical to a verse we find back in chapter 4, right at the start of Jesus' work in Galilee, Matthew 4.23. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So this summary statement appears twice, at the start of the section and at the end of it, describing Jesus' work in Galilee. I think we have to understand this as a literary marker. It's telling us this whole section is about Jesus preaching and performing miracles. And now we've come to the end of that section. And in that section, what did we see? Jesus made a big tour of Galilee. And he taught and he performed miracles, right? And we've seen over the last five chapters a representative sample of what Jesus' ministry looked like during this period of time. But now this part of the story has concluded. Now Jesus is going to do something new. And we learn the occasion for this new thing that Jesus is going to do in verse 36. We read, that, we read, when he saw the crowds, and we'll stop there. Now remember, for several chapters now, Jesus has been followed by this large crowd. A crowd made up not of sincere followers of Jesus, people who are interested in him and what he has to say. No, these crowds are made up of people who love the miraculous powers, who want to see something cool. And we've talked in recent weeks about how this crowd made Jesus' life pretty difficult. When he had to go to sleep, right? We're told he couldn't sleep in the city. He had to sleep in the wilderness because people were always mobbing him. Or when Jesus tried to walk to different places, the crowd was always pressing on in on him. Or when Jesus wanted to spend time with his disciples, he had to get away from the crowd. The crowd was always taking up Jesus' time and personal space. And this didn't just inconvenience Jesus. We saw that the crowds made things really hard for people who had business to do with Jesus, right? Like the guys who brought the paralytic. They couldn't get to Jesus because the crowd was so dense. And so the crowds have been a nuisance. And yet now, Matthew tells us what it was that Jesus thought when he looked at these crowds that were always mobbing him. Verse 36, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And Jesus wasn't angry at the crowd. He wasn't annoyed by the crowd. He had compassion on the crowd. And this is more than just pity. This is a profound, loving concern for people who are in trouble. This is the sort of love the Bible talks about when it says that God so loved this wretched, fallen, and broken world. Right? This is a love that compels God to act. And that's the love Jesus had for the crowd. Why? Well, Matthew says the crowd was in trouble. It was harassed and it was helpless. You might say, well, what does that mean? Well, the good news is the next phrase tells us. It says they were like sheep without a shepherd. This is language that comes from the Old Testament. 
in passages that describe what it was like for Israel after the reign of terrible King Ahab. Or like in Ezekiel that talks about false shepherds who exploited their own flock. This language speaks about people suffering under the hands of wicked political and religious rulers. And that's the issue here. These crowds have suffered under corrupt leadership. Politically, they were under King Herod Antipas, a puppet of Rome, a cruel man, and his lackeys, from corrupt tax collectors to abusive soldiers. Not only did they have bad political leaders, they had terrible religious leaders. The hypocritical Pharisees and scribes who have been antagonistic to Jesus over the last several chapters. They hate him because he speaks the truth. Being subject to all of this wicked leadership, these people have been exploited. They are vulnerable. They are susceptible to harm. They are shepherdless sheep. And so Jesus has compassion on them. He pities them and he is moved to act. Now we'll see what he does in a minute. But before Jesus acts, he speaks to his disciples, to the large number of true followers who are accompanying him at this same time. Verse 37. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Jesus looks at the crowd and he sees that it's like a harvest waiting to be brought in. This is like that metaphor we saw in chapter 4 when he says, I'll make you fishers of men. The idea is there are people out there who need the help, who need the guidance, who need the protection, who need the salvation that only God can give them. They need to hear the truth about Jesus. They need to be brought into the fold of God. But there's a big problem. There are so many of them. The crowds are enormous. And these crowds are themselves only representative of many, many other people who are scattered throughout the towns of Galilee who are similarly languishing. There are so many people with desperate needs who need to be reached. And who can reach them? Well, so far in this book, the laborers have been few. There have only been two people so far in this book who've tried to reach them. There was John the Baptist in chapter 3, but now he's been arrested by Herod Antipas. And so since chapter 4, there's only been Jesus. Now you might say, well, isn't Jesus enough? What's interesting is, Jesus doesn't think so. Now that might surprise you. He is God after all. But he's not only truly God, he's also truly human. He has voluntarily bounded himself by space and time. And to reach so many people scattered across such a large region is beyond one person who is in one place at one time. And so Jesus says this requires more workers, more people talking about Jesus, more people pointing to Jesus. And so Jesus says to his disciples in verse 38, Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. Pray that God would raise up people to pick up this labor going throughout this land and pointing to Jesus. Okay, what should we take from this first point? We see here why there's a mission that Jesus has to send people on. Because there's a lot of sheep who don't have a shepherd. Friends, that was true in first century Galilee. That's even more true in 21st century America. It's true throughout our world today, right? There are a lot of beleaguered people out there. People who have languished under oppression, who, like the first century Jews, have perhaps been harmed by decades of selfish, inept political leadership from all sides of the aisle. Or who have been harmed by false spiritual leaders, 
who have promoted false religions or New Age mysticism or who have been told that Christianity is about giving money to guarantee health and wealth or that Christianity is about political activism or social activism or whatever. There are many people out there who have been exploited and who are hurting and who not only have no hope, they have no idea where to look to get real hope because they are so confused by this cacophonous sea of false voices out there promising so much and yet delivering so little. There are indeed beleaguered people out there. And worse than that, friends, this mass of people is characterized not just by political oppression and religious oppression. They are spiritually oppressed. They're slaves of sin. They are spiritually dead. They are destined for eternal ruin. They are trapped in a pitiful condition. And friends, Jesus sees these people today. And we need to know that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And Jesus' heart is still full of compassion for these lost souls. But again, Jesus' compassion is not a detached emotion. It leads to action. The harvest needs laborers. And in the end, it is the Lord who sends the laborers into the field. That's what Jesus says. But Jesus tells us to pray that this would take place. And this is one of those situations where we are told to pray for something that we know is God's will. And the reason we've got to pray for this, apparently, is that God has decided to fulfill this part of his will by answering our prayers. And so like the disciples of old, we must pray for laborers. First of all, for God to raise up missionaries to reach those who are far away, but also for God to raise up believers in, like our church, who have the gift of evangelism to touch people in our community around us. For God to raise up qualified elders for our church to equip our members so that we each can serve as evangelists and reach those in our communities. Friends, Jesus told us in chapter 6 to pray for God's name to be reverenced as holy in this world and for God's will to be done on earth as in heaven. This is one way to pray that, that God would equip and raise up people to take the lead in bringing about this harvest. And friends, beyond praying for God to raise up others, we should also pray the prayer of Isaiah 6, saying, Here I am, Lord, send me. Because in our broken world, and confused culture, indeed the harvest is plentiful, and this is why there's a mission. Now we come now to our second point, which is who is on this mission? Well, Jesus has seen this need. He knows he needs to deploy laborers, and so now he takes action. Verse 1 of chapter 10, we read, And he called to him his twelve disciples. As Jesus has gone throughout Galilee, he's been followed by these huge crowds, but he's also been followed by a different group, a group of people who do have personal loyalty to him, his disciples. And this seems to be a pretty large group. Luke's gospel indicates it consists of at least 70 people. However, within this larger group of disciples, there is a smaller group, a group of 12 men who are Jesus' innermost circle. Now, if we're not careful, we, we might misunderstand verse 1 and think that it is at this point that Jesus selects his 12 disciples. That's actually not correct. What's being said here is not that Jesus selects the 12 at this point. Rather, the 12 seems to be a group that already exists. And we know that in part because Mark and Luke tell us when Jesus called the 12, and it was at a much earlier point in his ministry. But now Jesus says to the 12, you guys step forward. 
Because now Jesus is going to commission them to become the laborers that he just talked about. Jesus is going to send them on a missionary journey. Verse 1, and we read that he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. This description is similar to the summary statement we just read a few verses ago about what Jesus did in Galilee. The sorts of amazing and miraculous works that Jesus did that we saw over and again in chapter 8 and chapter 9. Miracles that are stupendous even by biblical standards. Exorcisms, healing lepers, raising the dead. This is amazing stuff. And now Jesus empowers the 12 to perform these same miracles. Why? Well, look at verse 2. We read, the names of the 12 apostles are these. And I'll stop there for a minute. Matthew designates the 12 using the term apostle, which means someone who is sent. And what Matthew's saying is these 12 men are the hand-picked emissaries. They are the authoritative representatives of Jesus. They're going to undergo this mission on his behalf. And so Jesus empowers them to represent him and to point to him by doing the same sorts of miraculous works that Jesus himself has been doing. Now, who are these 12 apostles? Well, first, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Okay, so here's the list of the, of the apostles. Let me say a few things about this list. First, this is one of four lists that we find in the New Testament that names the twelve. And these lists all have some commonalities and some differences. They all list Peter first. He was the leader of the disciples. He wasn't their boss, but that, right, their boss would be Jesus. But he was the first among equals. Uh, they all list Judas Iscariot, the traitor, last. At least the three lists do that record what was going on before Ju Judas' suicide. In Acts 1, Judas is dead, so his name's not listed. Uh, when you read these lists closely, you'll also discover that the exact ordering of the disciples is not consistent from list to list. Uh, generally, the disciples are consistently presented in groups of four. And within each group of four, the order that the names appear changes. But the first group of four names, Andrew and Peter and James and John, that all, they, their names are always listed together before any of the other names. And then the names that appear in the second group of four are always uh, listed in whatever order before the last group of four names. So it seems like there's some sort of an order or a hierarchy within this group of 12 men. And... While there are variations within the way that each of these group of four names are recorded, um, you do find some commonalities. Peter's always the head of the first group. Philip is always the head of the second group. And James, the son of Alphaeus, is always the head of the third group. And so it seems that each of these three tiers of disciples had their own leader. The primary difference that you see right away if you look at these lists involves one disciple who is here called Thaddeus, who in, the other two, who in two of the other lists is called Judas of James, which may mean he is Judas, the brother of James, the son of Alphaeus, or that he is the son of someone named James. We, we don't know. We also don't know why Thaddeus in two of the lists is called Judas in two of the other lists. 
I think the best explanation is that this man's name was Judas. But after the other Judas, Judas Iscariot became infamous for his treason. The good Judas didn't want to go around and say, hi guys, I'm Judas. That might not endear him to the Christian community, right? So I think that's why he chose to go by a different name. And we've seen in the gospel, sometimes people go by different names in different settings. Now in our list, Matthew presents the 12 disciples in six groups of two. And this may reflect an idea we saw in Luke 10, or we see in Luke 10, where Jesus sends out his missionaries in pairs. And so this may hint at the way Jesus organized this first trip. Now, who were these men? Well, other than Peter and John, we know very little about the rest of them. We know a few vignettes involving like Thomas and Andrew, but for the most part, we don't know much about these guys. We don't know who they were in their former life. We don't really know much about what they did for Jesus. We don't know what happened to them later. We know some snippets, but not much else. But what we do know is that Jesus chose them and that they carried the message about Jesus throughout the early world, even though it cost them greatly. And Jesus is going to tell them in this chapter, you guys are going to suffer for me. And if the early church is to be believed, almost all of these men wound up suffering martyrdom for their faith. So these were ordinary men who loved and served Jesus, and I think that's all we really need to know about them. But there is one more point I think we should draw out here, which is that Jesus called these men out of various backgrounds. Matthew, we talked about a few weeks ago, was rich. Uh, Peter and Andrew were independent businessmen, but they weren't rich like Matthew was, okay? So there's at least some socioeconomic diversity among the disciples. Moreover, Matthew, as a tax collector, had served King Herod Antipas and the Romans. But the 11th disciple on this list is called Simon the Zealot. Now, the Zealots were a political faction within the first century of Judaism who hated the Romans, who wanted to drive them out of Israel, and who wound up causing a huge civil war by murdering people that served Rome. So here we've got on the same team Matthew, the collaborator, and Simon the Zealot. So there are seriously different political backgrounds between some of these disciples. And yet, despite their economic and their political differences, the one thing all these guys have in common is they were chosen by Jesus. And that's what we've got to see here, friends. Who is on this mission? The people that Jesus chooses. And Jesus says in John 15 about the disciples, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And that's really important, friends. This is what must bind us together in the church. Because we live in a time in which there are a lot of forces at work in the American church trying to tell us that we must not be a diverse group. We must be homogenous. We must be politically homogenous. We must be socially homogenous. We must be ethnically homogenous. We must be ideologically homogenous. But friends, that is a lie. Jesus chose disciples from different backgrounds. And you know, I think this had a really interesting advantage. Because when Jesus picked people from all of these different backgrounds, they all shared only one thing in common, which was their relationship to Jesus. And what that did was it guaranteed that the main thing they could talk about and work together towards was the advancement of Jesus' work. And friends, I think that's why it's critical that we resist this urge to become homogenous along any lines other than our allegiance to Jesus. Because the church is not a social club. And the church is not a club for all people who have the same attitude about schooling. 
The church is not a club for all people who have the same attitude about COVID or about our political candidates or whatever the, the nonsense is that we're being told we all really need to fall in line because this is what the church is about. Okay, friends, the church is about representing and proclaiming Jesus. Okay, if you don't buy that, there are other churches that will serve you well. Okay, this is, this is a dividing line that, that, that if this is an issue for you, you need to leave. Okay, and I don't say that lightly. We are going to be about Jesus here. We're not going to be about anything else. Okay, Jesus is what we have in common. Jesus must be the core and the center of this church. But I've got to say one more thing here before we move on. And this is related to the idea that Jesus gave this amazing authority to the 12 to perform miracles. I've got to talk about this. Because nowadays there are a lot of people who want to say that when Jesus gave this authority to the 12, he invested this authority for all time in all of Jesus' disciples, including us today. So this week I was listening to a podcast on some events in recent church history. And a pretty prominent pastor popped up on this podcast, and he was talking about his involvement in what is known as deliverance ministry. Okay, so this is basically performing exorcisms today. And this pastor defended his participation in this practice because he said, quote, Jesus cast demons out with the word, and he has given us that authority, end quote. Is that true? Has Jesus given us that authority? I don't think so. Because in our passage, who does Jesus give this authority to? Not the entire group of people who are following him, but only the 12, only the apostles. And friends, we need to understand we are not the apostles, okay? 1 Corinthians 12 and Ephesians 4 tell us the apostles were a foundational gift that Jesus gave to the church 2,000 years ago. The apostles were Jesus' hand-picked representatives. They were the people who spread the gospel throughout the world, who planted the first churches. They were the witnesses of Jesus' resurrection, and friends, we need to know there are no apostles today. Now, we have received the benefits of the apostles. We are not deprived of the fact that there are no, by, by the fact there are no apostles today. Because for starters, we have the apostolic doctrine, which is recorded for all time in the New Testament. We have the church, which is in solidarity with the churches founded two millennia ago. But we are not the apostles. We should not expect that what is true of the apostles is true of us. A few weeks ago, I talked to a friend who told me, you know, the Bible's great, but what I really need is to hear from God audibly. That's what's authoritative, and sometimes God contradicts the Bible. I said, you are in real trouble, dude. Okay? We are not the apostles. We should not expect to receive some sort of new revelation or new communication from God. Okay? We should not expect that we can perform miracles of healing or that we can pronounce words of exorcism. Friends, we are not the apostles. Now, that doesn't mean that if we find someone in need of healing that we should walk away from them. On the contrary, we should give them what we have, point them to the hope of Jesus. We should pray that God would heal them. We should encourage them to get medical help, right? If we encounter someone and we say, man, I think this guy might have a demon, we shouldn't try to engage that demon or rebuke it. We should pray for God to handle it. Because we're not the apostles. But we have been given other valuable spiritual gifts. 
But friends, we should not pretend to be what the scripture has not said that we are. Instead, we should rejoice in what we are. We may not be the apostles, but we, if, if we belong to Christ, we too are people whom Christ has chosen. Our names have been written in the book of life from before the foundation of the world. And that should be enough to rejoice in and to attend to the work Jesus has given us to do. So that's who was on the mission, the people Jesus has chosen. All right, we come now to our last point, which is what is this mission and how do we go about it? Matthew says this in verse 5. These 12, Jesus sent out. So now Jesus is going to send out the disciples. And as he does, he gives them some instructions, some marching orders to equip them and to prepare them. Jesus isn't looking for them to make it up on the fly. right? He's looking for them to obey his instructions. And these instructions make up the rest of chapter 10. Now this begins Jesus' second discourse in the Gospel of Matthew. The first was the Sermon on the Mount, and now this second discourse is about Jesus preparing the disciples for their mission. Today we're just going to start this discourse. We'll spend more time on this later. But in this opening section, Jesus is going to define the disciples' mission, and he's going to give them parameters for conducting it. And the first parameters Jesus defines are geographic. He tells the disciples where they should go and where they must not go. Verse 5, he was instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles, and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. All right, so Jesus and the disciples are in Galilee. To their west is the Mediterranean Sea. To the north is Gentile territory. To the east is the Decapolis, which is more Gentile territory. And to the south is where the Samaritans lived. Now Jesus tells them, don't go in any of these directions. Now, they might have been tempted to go in these directions because, as you've already seen, Jesus has been throughout Galilee. They might say it's time to cover some new ground. They hadn't yet been to the north. Or perhaps they would have been interested in revisiting some ground where they had previously gone. John 4 tells us during the early days, Jesus went down to Samaria, and he had a great reception from the Samaritans. They might have thought that was fertile ground. Or you might remember a few weeks ago, Jesus went east into the Decapolis. And he exorcised some people, and they kicked him out for doing it. Maybe the disciples would have liked to give that area another try. But Jesus says, don't go to any of these directions. Instead, you're to go after the lost sheep of the house of Israel. They're to go after the sorts of folks who had been in these crowds around Jesus, Galilean Jews. Why does Jesus put this restriction on them? After all, we've seen from the beginning of this book that Jesus has not just come to be the Messiah for Israel, he's come to be the Savior of the world. Jesus' mission will ultimately include Gentiles, so why does he limit the disciples to only going to the Jews? For three reasons, I think. First, although Jesus' ministry will ultimately reach all of the nations, Jesus is indeed the long-promised Jewish Messiah. And the texts that predicted his coming and that said what he would do were Jewish scriptures. And the people to whom God had promised to send him were the Jews. And so to fulfill the scripture and to be recognized, Jesus had to go to Israel first. And this idea that evangelizing Israel was of first importance isn't just something that characterized Jesus' ministry. It was continued in the work of the apostles. Because after his resurrection, Jesus told the disciples, go to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. But the apostles remained focused on Israel, to the point that they were shocked when the Gentiles started believing. Remember, even someone like Paul, who was the apostle to the Gentiles, said in Romans 1, the gospel of Jesus is the power of salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek. 
So, yes, the Gentiles would be reached, but Israel, as the elect nation of God, had first dibs on all matters pertaining to the Messiah and his work. Second, there was a lot of racial hatred in first century Judaism against Gentiles. And if Jesus and his movement were widely seen as pursuing Gentiles at this early phase, it would have really hampered his ability to keep working among the Jews and to fulfill the scriptures. And third, in the handful of times when Jesus decides to deviate from this strategy, and when he does interact with Gentiles, he doesn't want to outsource that to the disciples. Right? That sort of work that anticipates a change in salvation history, that sort of work that would risk antagonizing his countrymen, that is delicate work for Jesus himself to do. That is not for the disciples to attempt on their first outing. Okay? So here's why I think the disciples are to interact only with Jews, likely the Jews in Galilee. Now the next thing Jesus says here is he defines the mission. Look at verse 7. He says, And proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. Okay, so the disciples' primary task is they are to proclaim a message. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And if that sounds familiar, it should because this is the message that was proclaimed by John the Baptist in chapter 3. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, this is the same message preached by Jesus in chapter 4. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And now it is the same message Jesus sends his disciples out to proclaim. What does this message mean? God reigns. He is the true king of this universe. But this world is in opposition to him. Now, God is not content with that. He means to claim and impose his dominion over this world. And he told the Old Testament prophets he was going to do this by sending the Messiah, the long-promised king of Israel, who would execute God's purposes for salvation and judgment. And now this long-promised kingdom is at hand. It has begun to burst forth into our world because the king has come into our world. So Jesus is here and he is inaugurating the kingdom. And in view of this truth, God calls on all people everywhere to repent, to abandon their old lives of rebellion, and to turn in faith to God's Messiah. That is the message Jesus has sent his disciples out to proclaim. Now you might say, well, wait a minute. Jesus and John talked about repenting, but we don't see anything about repenting here. Is this really the same message? The answer is yes. The disciples proclaim not only the kingdom, but the right response of repentance. And we know that from the way Mark talks about this mission. Mark 6.12 says they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. So they're clearly preaching the same message as Jesus and John. And friends, this is the message that the terribly desperate and needy people of Jesus' day and the terribly desperate and needy people of our day need to hear. This is the message that can give them hope, that will bring them into the flock of God. But not only are the disciples to proclaim this message, they're also to authenticate it. And how are they to do that? Well, by proclaiming these miracles Jesus mentions in verse 8. The miracles Jesus had empowered them to perform back in verse 1. Because these miracles prove the substance of their preaching. The Old Testament prophets said when the kingdom came, the kingdom would be characterized by miraculous transformation and restoration. And here the apostles are saying the kingdom has begun and they perform miracles that are consistent with what the Old Testament said about the kingdom. These miracles show that indeed the kingdom is bursting forth. The miracles authenticate their preaching. All right, so this is the mission. 
the disciples are sent out to preach the same message Jesus has been preaching and to perform the same miracles that Jesus has been performing. They are being sent out as an extension of Jesus' own ministry, pointing people to repentant faith in Jesus. That's what they're to do. But now Jesus gives them specific instructions on how they are to comport themselves on this journey. Verse 8, he says, You received without paying, give without pay. Jesus reminds the disciples that all he's given them, the, the grace that they don't really even understand fully yet, that's all come to them freely, right? Jesus didn't charge them money to hang out with him. His benefits come with no monetary cost. And so now Jesus says, as you pick up and continue my ministry, you likewise must do so for free. The preaching is not for sale. The miracles are not for sale. This is not a mercenary outfit. This is not a fundraising campaign. This is the proclamation of the coming of the Son of God. In fact, not only are the disciples not to charge money for their services on this journey, neither are they to do a bunch of planning and preparation. Look at verse 9. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts. They're not to pack money. Acquire no bag for your journey. They're not to take luggage along. Verse 10, they're not to take two tunics. No change of clothes. Verse 10, or sandals or a staff. Now this instruction is a bit difficult because in a parallel passage, in Mark 6, we read that Jesus tells them, take nothing for their journey except a staff and to wear sandals. So in Mark, Jesus wants them carrying a staff and having sandals, and in Matthew, it seems he doesn't. What's going on here? Well, this is a difficult one, but uh, there are some nuances, I think, that resolve this question. In Mark's account, the Greek verb Jesus uses uh, means to take along, and in Matthew, the verb means to acquire or buy. So I think we could say Jesus seems to permit his disciples to take along their normal sandals and staff, essential items for travel in that day, but they're not to buy new ones. Uh, there's a parallel passage in Luke 10 that I think points to this as well, where Jesus tells them not to carry sandals. That is a backup pair. They're allowed to wear them, but not to carry them. What, why? What does all of this have to do? Why are all these rules about this journey? Why not get new stuff? Why not pack a nice bunch of luggage for this trip? What's wrong with planning and preparation? Well, nothing. Elsewhere in the Bible, we find lots of times godly people strategize what they're going to do, and then they go do it. But in this situation, Jesus wants the disciples to go on this journey with as little preparation as possible, because Jesus wants the disciples to learn at this early stage total dependence upon the Father. That's what he's getting at when he says in verse 10, for the laborer deserves his food. Here's the idea. The disciples are to go out preaching and performing miracles, not taking along their luggage, not buying new goods, not bringing along full wallets. They are to do it all exactly as they are with exactly what they have on their persons right now because God will take care of them because the laborer deserves to eat. Now think about it. Who pays for a laborer's food? His boss, right? And in this case, who are the 12 working for? They're working for God. God will provide. And that's something Jesus is going to say a lot more about later in this chapter. But the disciples are to do this work with limited preparation as a huge step of faith, trusting God to provide. Unfortunately, passages like this are sometimes used by folks who are opposed to the idea of paying their pastors. 
They'll say, see, you shouldn't be drawing a salary from the church. Give without pay, Jesus says. Trust God to take care of you. It's an interesting argument, except for two things. First, it ignores what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 2, 1 Corinthians 9, and 1 Timothy 5 about paying laborers in the church. And my guess is the people who make this argument know that, but they're looking for ways to twist the scripture to justify their selfishness and their desire to avoid obligations to people who bring the word to them. But second, when Jesus says, trust God to take care of you here, how does Jesus expect God to take care of the twelve? Well, the answer contextually is through the generosity of the people they minister to. Because that's what Jesus talks about in the next several verses. They are to find people who will take them in and support them as they are on this mission. And through the generosity of those folks, God will provide for his laborers. Look at verse 11. He says, At whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. Now, the disciples are going to be visiting a lot of towns and villages on this trip. They're not to linger in any one spot too long. So the idea here is not they crash somebody's house, they eat them out of house and home for several weeks, and then they leave. No. They're to come to town, they're to stay just a few days at one location, and then they're to move on to the next town. But when they're in town, whose house should they stay at? And Jesus says, someone who is worthy. So what's, what's that mean? But Jesus doesn't tell us. But the context seems to point to somebody who is receptive to the message they're preaching. Someone who's willing to take them in and hear them out. And when the disciples find someone like that, they are to pronounce a blessing upon this person's house. Verse 12, as you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. In fact, Luke tells us exactly what Jesus wanted his representatives to say when they entered someone's house. Luke 10:5. whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And understand, these aren't empty words. This is a real blessing pronounced by the emissaries of King Jesus, speaking with Jesus, full backing, power and authority, conferring blessing and reward on those who take care of his laborers. Say, well, why is it a blessed thing to take care of a laborer for Jesus? Well, Jesus says at the very end of this chapter, in verse 40, whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he's a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Jesus considers generosity that is rendered to his workers to be generosity rendered to him. And even more than that, to the one who sent him, to the Father. God honors that. He rewards it. But what happens if the disciples lodge with someone, thinking they're receptive, and then it turns out those folks really don't want to have anything to do with Jesus? Was the blessing they pronounced on them still valid when they came into their home mistakenly? No. Jesus says in verse 13, But if it, the house, is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. The disciples aren't to force anyone to listen to them. People don't want to hear them. They leave. And when they leave, whatever house they had previously blessed, that blessing is rescinded by God. And more than just leaving, the disciples are to outwardly perform a sign. A sign of repudiation. 
a sign of separation that says, I want nothing to do with you. They are to shake the dust off their clothes and their feet. The idea is, I want to get all the particles from that place off of me. And again, friends, this is no empty gesture. Okay, I did this once. A lot of people laughed about it. It wasn't very funny. Because just as the disciples' blessing conferred spiritual rewards and benefits, this act of repudiation and separation serves a greater function. This is a sign of spiritual cursing and judgment that will fall upon those who reject the word of Christ. And that's what Jesus says in the last verse of our passage, verse 15. He says, truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Okay, this isn't a joke. Any place that rejects the disciples and their messages under God's judgment. Now, when you think about a place that gets God's judgment in the Bible, Sodom and Gomorrah are the obvious examples, right? God rained fire and burning sulfur on them because of their culture of shocking sexual sin. And the book of Jude says this was an example of the punishment of eternal fire. Sodom and Gomorrah weren't just judged in this world with fire. They will be judged forever in the fires of hell. But as bad as their judgment is, there is a worse judgment that awaits those who represent Jesus. Especially these guys in the first century who witnessed the miracles of the kingdom and yet hardened their hearts. They're going to get even more severe judgment than Sodom and Gomorrah will on the final day. That's what Jesus says. All right, so those are the marching orders Jesus gives his disciples. Now quickly, what should we take from all of these instructions? Well, again, we aren't the 12 apostles, and yet I do think there are some things we can learn from this passage by way of comparison and contrast. First, I want us to think about the mission Jesus has given to us. After his resurrection, Jesus told the 12, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. That's the Great Commission. Now you might wonder, well, if Jesus gave those instructions to the Twelve, do they have application to us, based on everything we've said so far today? Or were they instructions only for the Apostles? Peter writes this in 1 Peter 2. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Peter tells us the Great Commission of proclaiming Jesus isn't just for the Twelve. It's for all of us who have been called out of darkness into light. So the Great Commission represents Jesus' marching orders for all of us who believe. And this commission is a little different than what Jesus gives the Twelve here. First, Jesus told the Twelve just to go to Jews. But Jesus tells the church, go to all nations. We are not subject to the geographical or racial restrictions Jesus imposed on the Twelve. We are to evangelize people from every place. We, in fact, are to go to every place and to evangelize people who we encounter from every background. This is the basis of foreign missions. But also, friends, most of us won't go on a foreign mission. This is also the basis for us to be missionaries in the circles that God has put us in, or our families and our friends and our coworkers and our neighbors. No matter their background, they're our mission field. But while the scope of our mission is larger and more inclusive, there is a major similarity between what Jesus told the Twelve and what he tells us. We are still to proclaim the same message that Jesus taught and that his disciples taught. 
Now, on this side of the cross, we understand that message better than the 12 did. We understand that not only has the king come, but he has done all that is required to buy our pardon and to bring us into his family by his death and resurrection. We understand what the gospel entails much more fully than the 12 did back then. But friends, we are to proclaim Christ has come, and the right response to that truth is repentant faith. But friends, we are not to try to authenticate that message by performing miracles, because we're not the apostles. Instead, Jesus told us earlier in this book how we are to authenticate ourselves by being salt and light in this world, by being distinctive from the fallen world out there, and by living to perform good deeds that glorify Christ and point other people to him. It's not miracles that authenticate us today. It's our testimony. It's our lifestyle. It's our love. And yet, although the way we authenticate our message is different, we are like the 12 in this. We are still totally dependent upon the Father. Now, the 12 understood their dependence in terms of material goods, food and clothing and, and housing. Unless we're going into foreign missions today, we won't think about it like that. But friends, I would tell you, for our evangelism to prosper, we must be totally dependent on the Lord. Because salvation does not come to those we speak with through our persuasiveness, or through our cleverness, or through our ability to say the right thing at the right time and avoid saying the wrong thing at the wrong time. No, friends, salvation is totally of the Lord. Jesus said in John 6, No one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. And so the effectiveness of our missionary work is entirely dependent on the Father. We can proclaim, but only He can save, and so we desperately need His help. So we are to pray, and we are to obey. We are to proclaim the gospel to those who need it. Four times the Bible tells us the righteous will live by faith, and proclaiming the gospel is a step of faith. Because when we do it, we may encounter hostility. We may face blowback. We need God's help to endure that. And because we must have God's help, for our efforts to meet any success. To evangelize is to put yourself at the mercy of God. Because only if he works is our effort going to achieve anything. And so like the 12, we are still dependent on the Lord. And finally, like the 12, we are still to be discerning about the sort of responses that our efforts get. We need to figure out who is open and who is receptive and concentrate our efforts there. And when we find settled hostility and antagonism, then as Jesus said back in chapter 7, do not give what is holy to the dogs, and do not throw your pearls before pigs. Separate yourself from such folks, and let God handle it, and he will. So, friends, I hope today we have seen that the mission of Jesus is the proclamation of the gospel. Today, if you've never come to Christ, know that Jesus sees you languishing. He sees your true need. He has compassion on you. Turn to him and trust yourself to him and be saved. And if you do know Jesus today, I hope you have a better sense of why you're here and what you're to do. So let us pray for God to raise up laborers for the immense harvest that exists in our world. Let us volunteer to serve Christ by proclaiming his excellencies to those around us. And let us walk in faith trusting God, looking for those who are receptive, and proclaiming Jesus to them.